From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. We want your input. We say that employees are our most valuable asset, but too often we don't treat them that way, and that's a tragic mistake. That's Ken Hertz, MGMA Principal Consultant, talking about how you can improve your culture in the medical practice. We'll hear more from Ken later when Erica Betts sits down with me to chat about the new Culture RNA Report. Later, we'll talk to Paul J. Long about how to make your practice more fun. That's all coming up on this workplace, culture-based episode of Insights. But first, a word from our sponsors. Managing an organization's performance covers a variety of functions, including continuously monitoring team member performance, setting expectations, planning and delegating work, rating employee performance, developing the capacity to improve employee performance, and rewarding the great performances of hardworking employees. Maximizing Performance Management is a results-oriented book that will help you analyze your practice system by system and apply prescriptions that can improve your practice immediately. For more information and to view a preview of the book, visit mgma.com performance. Practice administrators do not need to be medical coders, but they do need to understand the coding process to ensure their practice's success. Attend MGMA's online seminar, Coding Essentials for the Non-Coder, to gain a deeper knowledge of the major coding principles and how they work together to drive practice revenue. The seminar consists of five 45-minute sessions plus the closing session. It will be held on February 5th, 2019. For more information, visit mgma.com events. There's an old saying, if you put the right person in the wrong culture, the culture wins every time. To help us dive into this topic today, we have Erica Betts with us in studio. Erica is a project analyst for the MGMA data team and a contributor for the newest MGMA research and analysis report about culture and burnout. Erica, thanks for joining us today. Of course, happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity, Daniel. You're here today to talk about the MGMA RNA report. Tell us a little bit about the report, how often you put those out each year, and, and really how you put them together. Absolutely. The RNA reports, or research and analysis reports, are a detailed analysis that capture industry topics to deliver information to help administrators manage their practices uh, more effectively. We typically create three or four of these reports per year. We have a research team dedicated to the entire process of the report, starting often with an MGMA stat poll data point, then moving forward into a survey, and ultimately with a series of qualitative interviews from experts in the field who may have experience or expertise related to the topic itself. Okay. Now, a couple of more questions on those. Who, who receives these reports right now? I mean, how would someone, one of our listeners, get these reports? Our reports are within MGMA's data dive. So you are a purchaser and user of MGMA data, 
and within your access to the DataDive platform, you're able to access all of the MGMA research and analysis reports. Now, is there a, a website, a URL, where people could go out and find it? Yes, it'd be best if you went to mgma.com backslash data and follow prompts through DataDive or the research and analysis reports. Thanks for that. Now, we have a new RNA report that we're going to be talking about today. It's on culture and burnout. So. Tell us a little bit about this report. How did you come up with this idea for it? And were there any particular findings from this report that surprised you guys? Absolutely. We, in the generation of the research and analysis reports, we look at topics that are currently prevalent within the healthcare industry and addressing burnout truly throughout all of healthcare um, is of great importance all the time, but really right now, something that's gained a lot of attention and focus. This particular uh, research and analysis report is called Factors of a Positive Culture. And the four main factors that we identified that contribute to this positive culture are behavior modeling, communication, engagement, and empowerment. Um, a couple of the very high-level key findings that we found throughout our research, both survey research and qualitative interview research are the importance of offering transparency to your staff, um, the involvement of stakeholders in decision making, empowering employees, and the primary key finding throughout our research was behavior modeling of positive practice culture comes from the top down. Okay. Now, this was a huge undertaking. I remember talking with you and some of your team all the way back in August about this report. It's now being published in, I guess, in February. February. So you went out into the field, you and your team, I believe you all spoke to as many as 14 experts. What was that like? I mean, that's a huge undertaking to go out, do all of this research, and then and then sort of pull all of this together. That's a great point, and I think some we we learned several things in the creation of this report as we started talking to more and more people. Uh, the scope of the project continued to expand. There are so many factors that contribute to the reduction of burnout and the creation of a positive culture. Uh, we were able to glean some very specific insights from a few of our interviews, but found overall that there, it's a topic with so many components um, that we really had to focus to drill down to the four key findings. You're right, it was a huge undertaking and something I didn't think as we started that we would understand how complex the entire issue was. Right, and as you were putting that together, uh, I asked you a couple of months ago, actually, if you could give me some of those experts to talk to. One of those is MGMA principal consultant, Ken Hertz. Tell us a little bit about Ken and why he was one of the people you chose for this report. Well, Daniel, I know you've talked to Ken some in the past and he's always a delight to work with. Uh, he has such a wealth of knowledge he is one of MGMA's principal consultants, um, and of the consultants that we have on staff, we thought Ken would be a great choice as his expertise encompasses strategic and oper operational areas, uh, improving processes, improving workflow, revenue cycle management, 
organizational development, he was a he was a fit for this report based on his areas of expertise. Right. So let's hear from Ken now. He's going to talk a little bit about toxic cultures and what steps to take to help transform a practice. There are a number of issues uh, and, and a number of ways that a practice can work on culture. First of all, it's really important to understand that it takes time to develop or redevelop or redefine a practice's culture. Secondly, it starts at the top. The physicians, uh, the physician leadership have to buy into this. It's critical for them to be a part of the process. The administrative staff has to be a part of it. And we need to engage the employees in rebuilding the culture. So the first part of it is to identify what's toxic, what are the problems. Once we've, once we've done that, then we engage employees in how can we make this better? How can we fix some of these things? Uh, give us your suggestions. We want your input. We say that employees are our most valuable asset, but too often we don't treat them that way. And that's a tragic mistake. So you can, you can uh, start at the top, work down, work through it. Um, then we work on, um, on doing training for people so that um, they understand what's required of them. Sometimes, Daniel, people are frustrated because there are no clear expectations. Um, they don't receive adequate training. They're asked to do a job they haven't been trained before, and nobody likes to appear stupid. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important that we give every single employee the tools that they need. That comes from training and education. And then, you know, sometimes we work uh, within practices on uh, communication workshops. Uh, when we do customer service training, it's important for everybody in a practice to understand that when we're talking about customer service training, we're not just talking about customer service training in terms of our patients because every person in the practice is a customer of somebody else. As Ken said, it takes time to develop culture. It starts at the top. You need buy-in from leadership and also need to set clear expectations through, through training and education for your staff. And another part of culture that we're seeing through this study and, and anecdotally as well is the impact that technology makes on culture. Um, one of our other experts is Deb Wiggs who's founder of V2V Management Solutions. Um, tell us a little bit about Deb and how you, how you landed on her and uh, chose her to be one of the experts for this report. Absolutely. Deb has been very involved with MGMA over the course of time. Uh, we heard from several of our colleagues that she might be a positive contributor to this report. They warned us of her wigisms, as they're called, which are clev clever insights with actionable little quotes. Um, with over 40 years of experience in healthcare, she was a great contributor to our research. So let's hear from Deb right now. She's going to talk about technology's impact on culture and how so many people and organizations will do what she calls hide behind their technology. Yeah, it is about communication, Dan. Uh, the thing that I 
find fascinating when I say the word hide behind technology, it's using devices to avoid conversation. And um, I have mentioned this and I talk about it a lot is my golden rule, which is email and texting is for data, not for discussion. And so thinking about it, just how many times do you, how much time do you spend on a daily basis emailing and texting back and forth to someone when if you took two to three minutes, got up and went and talked to them, you'd have a conversation over. There's a whole disruption that goes on every time you have to reset and put into words. And people, I don't think, really appreciate what that does then to the human connection on this. Because what is obviously lost most frequently when you're um, texting and emailing is tone and body language. And then you spend an inordinate amount of time on the backside having to kind of clean up that mess, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Love email for getting information out. Love texting for a quick answer, yes or no. But it kind of thinking about it from a rule of thumb is if I have to hit reply or reply all more than twice, I've just gone into a discussion or a conversation and I should reset my thinking about how do I communicate with this person. I go into practices as V2V and we look at, you know, how we transform things. And so much of what we have to do at the beginning of the conversation is reset people's expectations for talking to one another. Many times they don't even know how to accomplish that. And they're, the, the, the function of throwing out, you know, direction, particularly as an administrator to folks through email frequently causes disconnections and discommunication with people, which at the end of the day, anytime you have dis in front of a word, you've got a culture issue and people start to misunderstand and that then drives their perception of their value, their abilities and the expectations that you have of them and their performance. She's right. Um, often we find ourselves heads down behind our computer, sending emails back and forth when really you could accomplish something much quicker and much more effectively if you just jump up out of your seat and go next door and talk to your coworker about it face to face. Absolutely, I know what you're talking about because we'll be sitting there IMing each other or trading emails back and forth and for whatever reason, the, the actual message keeps getting lost and you just finally go, okay, okay, I'm picking up the phone, I'm walking down the hall, I'm gonna talk to this person, person to person, and just get it taken care of, you know, whatever it is. It's usually something not that big a deal, but it, the message keeps getting lost and it's so frustrating. But I, I love that advice from Deb. Absolutely, and it helps you to connect with your coworkers as well. And to her point of interpreting tone and body language, you're so much more able to do that effectively in person than via digital communications. Absolutely. Um, we have a really interesting uh, clip coming up. Uh, it's with Melissa Philippi, and first tell our audience a little bit about Melissa and what the relationship there is. Absolutely, Melissa works for um, a wonderful organization called Performance Culture, and they are actually the sponsor for this research and analysis report. Uh, we connected because their company offers several tools, tips uh, to help practices in improve their culture. So through a connection with performance culture, we were able to provide additional insights with this report. Okay, thanks for that. Now, Melissa has a very unique situation that she's gonna talk about. 
Um, she's based in the Wilmington, North Carolina area. And hospitals and medical practices in general, they're faced with very catastrophic and uh, uh, life-threatening situations. You know, they could be on a daily basis depending on their practice. Well, they found out uh, sort of uh, nature took over with Hurricane Florence. And in this clip, uh, Melissa talks with Philip Brown, who's the chief physician executive at New Hanover Regional Medical Center, and how they implemented um, a cultural plan and a leadership, uh, top-down leadership, where they could combat uh, hurricanes and other acts of God, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So let's hear from Melissa now. Please be warned, though, that some of the sound quality here may not be of the highest quality, but the content is fantastic. So it's not our first hurricane, and it's not our first, uh, we'll call it a shelter experience. We call it shelter in place. We've had to do it for several ice storms as well, because based on our region, any little bit of ice actually paralyzes us, in many cases worse than the hurricanes do. But we have a command center structure that we go into um, at, based on a preset time frame from onset of disaster, if you will. And it has enough people to run the entire hospital part of the enterprise 24-7 for the duration. We bring in extra food. We bring in extra fuel for generators. We have all kinds of things set up. We have, you know, utility companies on standby. We have our, it's, it's a huge operation to do that we actually practice and plan ahead for. And then we have basically a couple of command structures you, I mean, you may have for during the storm, you'll probably have a duplicate command structure so you can do day and night and you also have day and night shifts. So we had a small city during the storm of about 2,500 uh, employees and patients together in our facility. And then we have uh, another team that is basically at home during the time. And as soon as that shelter is broken based on the, uh, safe travel conditions, then that team comes in and replaces everybody that was there. That actually provides one of our greatest challenges in a long storm like Florence, because what you see is when you have this culture of highly motivated people, and they're two fundamentally different tasks. The while you're there during the storm, it's very, you know, everybody together, you know, you got physical plant challenges that have to be dealt with. And it just, it brings everybody into a, you know, a close proximity. And then when that breaks and you have to stand everything back up, I mean, we've got 40 facilities, then it's a whole different challenge. And so the, our, our biggest uh, uh, sort of diplomatic hurdle was how do you disengage those people who have been so highly engaged so that the next team can come on where people have been there for, five days this time, tired as they can be, um, you know, and, and they just need a break. And they need to go and check their homes and things like that. And, but they also just need to disengage from the process. And so the intentionality behind setting up the system like that is really important because, you know, it's not something we stumbled on. We know it's like that. It's like that every time that you just have to shift gears and take on a fundamentally different task and it's easiest to do that if you make a clean break of the leadership. 
It also sends a tremendous message to the entire organization. So for instance, in, in the case of Florence, our CEO um, was incident commander during the storm and our COO was the flip side of that coin during the storm. And then after the storm, I was incident commander. Both of those people left completely, went home, took care of their stuff. That was a message to the whole organization that, you know, it was okay to make sure that you're taking care of yourself, your family, and we have this taken care of here. And when you come back, we'll be ready for you. Absolutely. And hey, Daniel. Hey, Daniel. Yeah. I was yeah. just, um, I want to jump in on a few things too, just to kind yeah. of also add from the performance culture standpoint on this. I think a lot of what he's saying and what you asked earlier is, uh, I think there, there was some allusion to behaviors and core values. And you know, all of everything that he said comes with, of course, careful operational, operational excellence, operational planning, but you have to have teammates and employees that are willing to do this kind of stuff. They're not going to be willing to do, to respond that way if they don't see leaders responding this way and modeling that behavior. So that's kind of where the, I think the research report really kind of speaks to is that behavior modeling that we were talking about from a the, the performance culture standpoint from our experience with working with healthcare organizations and really all organizations that an organization is only as healthy as its top leader so we talk about a performance culture having a defined set of core values that everybody is in alignment with that they all know that that you can lean on and from those core values what are those workplace behaviors that demonstrate those core values and we then say, okay, how can we translate that into coaching? So we've got alignment on that, and then we need to coach our employees. And that's where we use that performance values matrix that I think you've seen with performance culture, where we're going to really lean heavily on not only being a great company and winning, uh, winning with our high performance and high patient standards, and, and also on our revenue, we've got to have that, but also how do we do it in a way that has those behaviors that are displaying the, the core values, you know, that we uh, have a healthy get it, get it done culture. Ah, very interesting insight. Um, Dr. Brown talks about his experiences related to natural disasters. And while he's addressing hurricanes in his area, you know, in Denver, we deal with snow and fires. Um, other places are going to deal with flooding, earthquakes, severe thunderstorms. I think that this example really shows that you know, by working together, you can you can take care of both your your community and yourself and your family. Absolutely, and it, it really speaks to our final speaker, Anthony Shire, who's going to talk quite a bit about empowering the medical staff because you've really got to have that buy-in from everybody on the team mm -hmm. in these extreme situations and on a day-to-day -day situation. So tell us a little bit about Anthony before we hear from him first. Yes, definitely. He started his uh, professional career in healthcare in 1992. Uh, he's worked in healthcare ever since. So again, another interviewee who has a wealth of knowledge as it applies. And one of the main points that he made in our conversations is the framework of, of an ideal culture or a culture that has all of the parts really starts with the physicians and goes all the way down to the lowest staff member as everyone works cohesively as a team. Absolutely. Now, Anthony is currently executive director of Cheyenne OBGYN located in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So let's hear from Anthony now. I think the main thing, it, it falls under leadership and you know, leadership is the, 
primary place where it first gets developed. And you know, working with several different physician groups, different specialties, I have found over the years that it's really all about leadership. And one of the things about physicians is they are not necessarily trained on leadership. They're trained on being physicians. And so having a, a relationship with a, a medical practice executive or an administrator that, uh, that can bring in some of those leadership um, qualities really makes a difference. Now, over the years also, I've learned uh, a lot of different leadership styles. And one of the, the, the couple of styles really stand out as far as what uh, can really create an empowered group versus one that's not empowered. And, and, and I think those two leadership styles are servant leadership and transformational leadership. Now, both of those are very similar. Uh, they, they have the, the same type of an approach where it's focused on relationship building and communication and working with people to help make sure that they can be the best that they can be. Um, you know, versus that traditional style of leadership that was focused on directing and telling people what to do. Um, the next uh, piece that I found uh, is going back to Jim Collins' good to great principles of getting the right people on your team and getting the wrong people off. Mm -hmm. uh, I often have found that that, you know, having the wrong people on actually drains the organization. Um, you know, and, and I think that that could cause some of that not feeling empowered. Mm -hmm. uh, but honestly, it really does stem from from the overall leadership of the organization. Um, some of the other things I know that I've created is, uh, you know, when I when I first go into that and an organization is, I really observe attitudes, uh, uh, attitudes that that were created from previous administration. And if I find that they fell under that traditional style of leadership of directing and telling, that that I found that those employees or those team members, they didn't they didn't feel empowered. They were just told what to do, and and they didn't feel like that they had a voice. They 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 didn't feel like that they could be considered a an owner of the clinic, even though they weren't physically owners. Um, you know, so that was, you know, just observing that and then saying, wow, you know, how do we change that? Well, we build trust. Right. We, we express appreciation. We, we focus on communication. Um, you, know, I, you know, having weekly meetings with the team leads to help deliver that communication, both upstream and downstream, you know, figure out, out ways of solving problems together as a group and not at the leadership and then telling people what to do, uh, you know, just in, in the whole encouragement of, of having the team be part of the solution. Right. Um, you know, now it does help if the physicians have a mindset of appreciation. Sometimes I feel like that physicians in some specialties I have found their egos are a bit inflated. Mm -hmm. They feel like that they're better than everybody else. They, they don't have time for, you know, the soft skills that are needed. Um, but that's, you know, so, so part of building that, that empowerment type of clinic is, is really working with both the physicians and with the team and educating them 
on being the best that we can be for the skills that each one of us are doing. Great information from Anthony. Uh, one point that I wanted to highlight and touch on that was a key finding within our research is the importance of that communication, building trust, expressing appreciation. Primarily, the weekly meetings that he mentioned, touch bases with your team so that you can stay on the same page with different projects or different things that are going on. That constant communication seems to be a large area where many practices could make an improvement, but a small thing that would be a big payout in the end. A big part of building a team is, is through trust. And Anthony is a wealth of knowledge and he, he uh, I loved what he said about that really helps drill down to some of the important points of communication. Eric, I can't wait to see the full report. I think it's going to be published in the next week or two. Is yes. that correct? Early yes. February? Yes. That's going to be great for our listeners and uh, the Data Dive subscribers. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for taking time to talk with me and for the opportunity to discuss this important topic. To find out more about the Culture and Burnout RNA Report, visit mgma.com slash data. So what makes a happy working environment? According to motivational speaker Paul J. Long, the more employees can play and relieve stress, the harder and more efficiently they'll work. To dive into this more, MGMA Senior Editorial Manager Chris Harrop has been talking to Paul about making the workplace more fun for your employees. You know, compassion fatigue is a real phenomenon right now, and burnout is, is high in the healthcare industry. And so oftentimes when we're walking through our, our you know, our job, and we're working these 10s or 12s or whatever it may be, and we're discouraged by the lack of appreciation that maybe our leadership shows or that we feel as though we can't spend time or as much time with our patients as we desire to because we got to churn them and burn them as much as possible. Well, you get frustrated and, and some folks, they get really furious and that burnout happens and they ask themselves questions like, why, why am I in this role? And, you know, I'm going to think about leaving this. Well, the curious individuals, they take a look in the mirror and they look at their purpose and they remember why did they get into this field to begin with? That never, that never left. I mean, that reason why you got into healthcare industry, if it was because you cared about people or you wanted to see them smile or you wanted to see them on their path to, to health that didn't die, it didn't go away. There's just been some challenges in getting you to see that on a regular basis. It's crucial if you wanna have more fun, joy, and fulfillment in healthcare, that you gotta get back to your roots and understand what gives you strength and start being a little more curious as opposed to furious in any situation. I'm really glad you brought up burnout because obviously that's a huge issue in healthcare. It's not just physicians, you know, nurses, even med students, stress, exhaustion, feelings of lacking fulfillment, but it's not just an issue in healthcare. Uh, I recently sat in a three-hour workshop on workplace issues. The speaker made a really good point about how five days out of seven, we're at work. Some of us more than that, and that those other two days sometimes lead people into the idea of thinking that those two days are just to prepare you for the next five days, the laundry, right. the shopping, the cleaning, and you know that can affect anyone. What do you encourage for the sort of affirmations or setting an optimistic outlook, you know, regardless whether you're in healthcare, healthcare administration, or whatever it is that you do in life? One of my biggest challenges in becoming a speaker is marketing this concept of fun. 
Because oftentimes there are leaders out there that look at fun as potentially a inhibitor to performance. So fun to me is not just a, a word or, you know, being crazy, silly, you know, any of that jazz. It truly is. How do you present yourself and how do you live your life? So when folks ask me, Paul, do you ever have a bad day? Typically, I always answer with a resounding yes, of course, I have bad days. But what I do when I'm having a bad day or a bad week is I gravitate towards the things that give me strength. So when we're exploring next steps and when folks are going through burnout or compassion fatigue or whatever it may be, what happens is we're so focused on all the crap that's not working that we're not, we're not seeing all the stuff that is. And so there are phenomenal things happening all around us all the time. But when you're hypersensitive to all the things that aren't working, you can't see it. So it's my belief that, that some of these individuals that are super unhappy in their you know, job or at home or whatever it may be, it's not that bad things happen to them and only them. It's that they are expecting bad things to happen. So it's all that they see. So to answer your question, what advice would I give anybody dealing with you know, burnout or stress, anxiety, whatever it may be? It's simple, Chris. Gravitate towards the things that lift you up more than the things that tear you down. I recently was going through the airport here at MCI in Kansas City, and TSAs get a bad rap. But what's interesting about, there's, there's often, just as there are in law enforcement, healthcare, speakers, and everything, there's, there's great individuals in TSA, and there's folks that maybe they shouldn't be in that role. Well, I'm walking through the x-ray machine recently, and I heard one TSA say to another, what letter are we on? And so I go up to that gentleman and I say, hey, what are you doing? He said, hey, well, we like to create a little game where I ask my buddy a letter that starts or a word that starts with whatever letter we're on in the alphabet. And then I have to use that word seamlessly in my conversations with my guests as they come through the x-ray machine. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is amazing. That is one way to create a little game in a monotonous situation. So that's what I call a fundamental. Uh, that is a fundamental of a fun and optimistic lifestyle. Do more fundamentals and you will live more fundamentalism. So if that means listening to music, if that means that getting away, you have to go out for a walk. If that means that you have to get out in nature and, and see the garden where your respective, you know, uh, hospital or, or doctor's office is. If it means that you're going to share a kind word to a stranger, if you're going to take five minutes out of your day to reflect and ask yourself, what's the best thing that's happened to me today? All of these things are what I call fundamentals, and there's literally millions of them. But nobody could be you better than you, Chris. I'm not going to ask anybody to do me, get out and wear a cat suit out at Royal Stadium. <laughs> but what I will ask you to do is find something that makes you smile and do more of that. Well, that concludes our Workplace Culture episode. Thanks to our guests, Erica Betts, Ken Hertz, Deb Wiggs, Anthony Shire, Melissa Philippi, Dr. Philip Brown, Chris Harrop, and Paul J. Long. If you like the show, please rate and review it on wherever you get your podcast. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to check out our other series, Industry Insider, where we have full interviews and go deeper on the biggest trends and challenges medical practices face today. If you have any questions, concerns, or ideas, please shoot us an email at podcast at mgma.com. 
MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.